Does it count as reading someone else's mail when you're BCC'd on it? This is the backdrop for Pomona Valley Church. Welcome back, Brave Souls. We are continuing our journey through the book of Revelation today with chapters 2 and 3, where John writes short letters to each of the seven churches in the province of Asia to whom this whole book is ostensibly addressed. I say ostensibly because, as you will know if you've listened to the first episodes of this little series, which again, I would suggest you do because the ideas and images kind of build on each other as we make our way through the book. But I say ostensibly because these seven churches are really a stand-in for the whole church in Asia. And John would surely have meant for more than just these literal seven churches to hear and act on this message that he has. This episode actually got long enough that I've decided to split it into two shorter episodes with introductory comments and the first three coastal cities in the first part and then the last four cities in part two. So let's start part one with some comments that will frame our discussion of these chapters from Revelation. The seven letters begin with one to the church in Ephesus, the same church Paul was writing to in the book titled Ephesians. It was the largest city in the region. And then from there, it kind of goes in a geographical arch shape, going up the coast of what is now Western Turkey, and then circling back down south to the churches a bit on the inland side of things. It's a circuit one could travel if one were taking this book throughout the whole region, which is probably what happened. There is no evidence, and it's very unlikely that John intended for, say, just the church in Smyrna to read the letter that is addressed to Smyrna. These were intended to be read together by all the churches. Again, kind of like a BCC on an email. John's message to each church has some local color included, which we'll get to in due time here. But the message at its core is universal to all of them. And it's one we've already hit on in our two episodes so far. John is saying to each of the churches, don't accommodate to Rome by participating in the worship of the emperor and of Rome itself. That seems like the honorable and life-giving way, but in fact, that way lies shame and death when you peel back the surface and see the reality underneath. Instead, resist this cultural tide by being faithful witnesses to Jesus. Because while that will likely lead to economic, social, and physical consequences for you, the truth is that a secure, eternal life with God will be the ultimate result. There's a consistent theme of reversal through these two chapters, of death actually being life, and vice versa, life being death, of shame actually being honor, of wealth actually being poverty. John wants to consistently challenge the assumptions of what is good, honorable, and life-giving in the eyes of the culture of the Roman Empire with what is truly good, honorable, and life-giving in the eyes of Jesus and Yahweh. And this is why we read these letters too, because it's no different for us today. The idols of our culture, wealth, power, violence, social status, family, the things we look to for safety and security and to make us feel like it'll all be okay, they're really not too different from the idols of Rome. The ways of worshiping them might have changed, but the object of worship hasn't changed much at all. And John's message to us would be, in that light, the same as his message to the churches in these two chapters. A couple more thoughts to set the stage before we dive into the individual letters. First, all of these cities were, 
as we outlined in our intro episode, highly involved in worship of Rome and the emperor. They all had temples and shrines and worship practices that were intended to honor Rome and give thanks to Caesar for their prosperity. We will allude to some specifics as we go on here. But second, the letters are addressed to the angel of the church in such and such city. This is a little strange. There aren't really any parallels in other books or letters to compare this to. So scholars have all sorts of theories as to why John calls his addressee an angel of the church. Most likely, this is just an artful way of saying to the whole church in such and such a place, because clearly these messages were intended to be read by the people in each church, not by some angelic being or something. So it's not totally clear why John does it this way, but we also don't need to get too hung up on it either. It doesn't change the message that he's sending in any way. Now, third, you'll see that the structure of each letter is more or less the same. There's a reference to Jesus, usually borrowing imagery from the vision of Jesus in chapter one, then a message of how Jesus has seen their good and their bad, the ways they have been faithful and the ways they've been unfaithful to him. Then there's usually an encouragement either to turn back to Jesus or to keep on going the way that they have been going, depending on the case. And then the letters usually close with an assurance of the final security of those who stay faithful and a warning of the insecurity of those who are unfaithful. The details vary from letter to letter, but that same pattern is consistent, which again highlights how John's message is basically one message to all the churches. Okay, with that said, let's dive in one by one here, starting in chapter 2, verse 1, with the city of Ephesus. And once again, I am reading the translation of Brian Blunt. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, which are your struggle and your nonviolent resistance, because you cannot bear evil people. You tested the ones who call themselves apostles but are not, and you found them to be liars. You demonstrate nonviolent resistance, that is, you bear up for the sake of my name and have not grown weary. But I have against you that you have forsaken your first love. Therefore, remember how far you have fallen and repent and do your former works. If not, I will come against you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you do have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let the one who has an ear hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. I will give the one who conquers permission to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Ephesus was the most powerful largest city in Asia, and one of the largest in the whole empire, actually. It was also one of the main centers for the Christian faith in the first centuries after Jesus' death. Paul, again, wrote a letter to them. One of the major church councils, a few hundred years after John is writing, it took place in Ephesus. The city, on the other hand, had two major temples dedicated to Caesar Augustus, and the massive temple dedicated to the goddess Artemis, was one of the famous seven wonders of the ancient world. It's recorded in the book of Acts that Paul ran into some trouble with the locals when they came to understand him as being challenging to the power of Artemis, who was their patron deity. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 19, if you would like to. Ephesus is commended for their discernment. 
not going along with those who say that accommodation to worship of Caesar, eh, it's fine. Those are the Nicolaitans mentioned in verse 6, and they will show up again in later letters. The Ephesians, it seems, have resisted and stayed faithful to Jesus in this respect, and they have not grown weary of the struggle that goes along with that resistance. However, they've somehow lost love in all this. The self-giving love of Jesus has stopped being reflected by their church, even though they have stayed faithful in other ways. John doesn't give any details, but perhaps the struggle of staying discerning and rejecting false worship practices, maybe that spilled over into being distrustful and closed off. Perhaps they become an isolated, almost monastic group, separated from the culture, not just in the sense of not worshiping the idols of the culture, but also in the sense of not loving those whom Christ wants them to be a light to. We're speculating here, but the point is similar to that made by Paul in the letter to the Corinthians. You can do all the faithful religious stuff you want, but without love, it doesn't mean anything. Being a faithful witness to Jesus must include love of neighbor because that's who Jesus is. Without it, we aren't truly representing Jesus at all. John closes by emphasizing that eternal life will be there for the one who conquers. Conquer is, of course, a militaristic metaphor, but in Revelation, John uses conquer to mean being faithful to Jesus to the end. We conquer by overcoming the obstacles and distractions and opponents to following Jesus, continuing through all the way to the end. Now, one final troubling note on the letter to Ephesus Jesus says that if they cannot restore their love, he will remove their lampstand. The lampstands, if you remember, represent the churches themselves in the vision of chapter one, with Jesus walking amongst the the lampstands. Jesus is saying, if you persist in not loving your neighbor, then, as Paul says, all this will be meaningless, empty, nothing. Your church itself will cease to exist in any meaningful way. N.T. Wright notes in his Revelation for Everyone commentary that despite the prominence of Ephesus in the first centuries of the church, there is currently no Christian church in Ephesus. On now to Smyrna. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, Thus says the first and the last, who was dead and lived, I know your persecution and your poverty, though you are rich, and the slander from those who call themselves Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Fear nothing that you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison so that you might be tested, and you will have persecution for ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let the one who has an ear hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. The one who conquers will certainly not be harmed by the second death. This passage has a bit of an elephant in the room that we will spend some time on. But before we get to what has been used as a tool of oppression and violence by anti-Semites in the years since John wrote, let's clear out a few quicker things of note. Smyrna was a wealthy city, as was the case with most of these cities in this chapter of Revelation. And it was situated on some of the prime trade routes along the eastern Mediterranean coast. It was, in the distant past, at the time of John's writing, the birthplace of the poet Homer, who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. Smyrna built a temple to the emperor Tiberius, his mother Livia, and the Roman Senate in 26 AD. 
And it's worth pausing on this for a second because it's a perfect example of something we talked about in the intro episode. The temple is dedicated, again, to the emperor, his mother, and the Roman Senate. When we talk about emperor worship and worship of Rome, it's important for us to remember that the people of the time did not necessarily think that these were gods in the sense that we might mean today, like an all-powerful spirit being sort of thing. No one thought the Roman Senate (laughs) was an all-powerful spirit being. What they did think was that the Roman Senate was a benefactor for their community, on par with the gods. That they owed their wealth, prosperity, security, safety, as much to the emperor, his mother, and the Roman Senate, as they did to any all-powerful spirit beings. And so they treated them with the honor that a benefactor, on par with the gods, ought to be treated. I'm spending time on this idea over these first few episodes because this is the crucial point of contact for us today. If we hear John's message as, don't worship the non-Yahweh powerful spirit beings, well, that isn't too much of a temptation for many of us today, and the message seems irrelevant. If, on the other hand, we hear John's message as, don't look to places or things other than Jesus for your safety, security, and prosperity, especially not those places that most of the people around you turn to, well, that's a message we can apply directly to our own lives in the most powerful wealthiest empire the world has ever known. Other quick thoughts. John mentions a persecution that will last 10 days. This is not literal, as if he's predicting how many days they will be in prison or something like that. He's saying it will be a relatively short time, not dragging on forever. Jesus promises safety from the second death to those who conquer. We'll see this image of second death show up later in the book, and we're going to talk about it more there and kind of skip it for now. For now, we'll just say that it's similar to the promises of eternal security and life that accompany most of these letters. Next, the church in Smyrna is mentioned as being outwardly poor, but in the apocalyptic perspective of John, who pulls back the curtain to expose what is truly real, they're actually rich. Their poverty would have been in contrast to the city around them, and is likely a sign that they have been excluded economically from the prosperity of the city. In all likelihood, they've been excluded because they have clung faithfully to Jesus and not gone along with the idolatry around them. And this is why John is commending them for their poverty. It is not being poor that John is commending any more than he praises being executed. He praises the faithfulness that has the consequences of poverty or execution because the outside world is threatened by their nonconformity. And that's a good basis from which to address the seeming anti-Semitism in this letter. John mentions the slander from those who call themselves Jews, but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. This has been used in horrific and frankly, anti-Christ-like ways over the centuries, and that needs to be acknowledged up front. Now, there are a few pieces of context that are important in helping us understand what this is about in John's mind in contrast to how it has been misused since. First, there were large Jewish communities in all of these cities to whom John is writing. Only in two of them does John specifically condemn those Jewish communities. In other words, this is clearly not a blanket condemnation of all Jews. 
It's a particular condemnation of this community and the way it has treated the Christian community in Smyrna. Those who have used this as a blanket condemnation of all Jews are twisting the words of Scripture to support their violent, oppressive, racist ideas. And, well, John has some harsh words for people like that later on in this very book. Second, again, these were large Jewish communities that are very integrated into the life of the Roman Empire and of these cities. One scholar's estimate was that there were perhaps 60 million people in the whole of the Roman Empire at the time, and around 5 million, so almost 10%, were Jewish. Around 50,000 were Christian, so less than one-tenth of 1%. In terms of one of these cities, that would have translated into a Jewish population in the thousands or tens of thousands, and a Christian community of maybe a few dozen. Third, as we mentioned in the intro podcast, Judaism was an officially recognized religion in Rome, a faith of ancient enough roots that its adherents were officially exempt from worship of the local gods and goddesses and worship of the emperor. They would have been expected to show proper honor to Rome, of course, but they were allowed to stop short of participation in worship practices that would have violated their monotheism. Newer religions, however, did not have the same sort of protection. Now, at this time, the Roman government was not in the business of rooting out deviant religious practices and then punishing them. They weren't going door-to-door asking people to sign a statement of faith in the goddess Roma. However, if someone were denounced to them, they would investigate. Ben Witherington put it like this, the Roman justice system depended on informants and almost anyone could be a snitch or in Latin, a delatoris. He also points out that the position of Jews in the empire, while still protected to some extent, was becoming more unstable, more tenuous in the final decades of the first century. This was due in large part to the fact that the Jews in Jerusalem had revolted against Roman rule and had to be violently repressed with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. (laughs) Rome, for some reason, wasn't feeling quite so benevolent towards this particular minority after that little incident. Putting this all together, in some cities, it seems to have been the case that the Jewish community had begun denouncing Christians as no longer Jews. To the Romans, the Christians would have looked like Jews, so far as they could see, or so far as they cared. But some Jews had started saying, nope, they are not with us. And this then forced the Romans to take action against this new deviant religion. John calls the Jews in Smyrna a synagogue of Satan. Satan means literally the accuser. And the figure of Satan functions in the Old Testament as an accuser of the people of God. Here, The synagogue of the Jews are accusing the people of God, the Christians of Smyrna, to the Romans. They are doing the work of Satan, literally, in that they are accusing the people of God, but also figuratively in the sense of opposing the work of Yahweh in the people who are following Jesus. As Brian Blunt puts it, John is lashing out against one minority community, the Jews, that is trying to protect its religious turf by seeking approval and status from the powerful majority community at the expense of another minority group. In other words, what is happening in the first century, what John is writing against, is a relatively large and stable group 
some Jews, using the levers of state power and violence to go after a far more vulnerable, marginalized group, the Christians. When later people have used these same words to do that very same thing, use the levers of state power and violence to go after vulnerable, marginalized groups of Jews, they are engaging in the very work that John calls the work of Satan here. So to sum up, while these words have been used as tools of violence against Jews over the past two millennia, doing so is actually to do the very thing John condemns in this letter to Smyrna. I know that was a little on the long side, but it's a really important thing to talk through in some detail. I hope that you found it so as well. Now, moving on up the coast to the city of Pergamum. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, Thus says the one who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you live, where the throne of Satan is. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith. In the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was executed among you, where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to throw a stumbling block before the people of Israel, so they would eat meat sacrificed to idols and commit the sexual offense of prostitution. Thus you also have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans as well. Repent, therefore, if not, I will come against you soon and wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. Let the one who has an ear hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give that one a white stone, and on the stone is written a new name that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now Satan shows up again in this letter. Likely this is due to the fact that the seat of the Roman administration for this region was located in Pergamum. Satan throughout this book is connected to Rome and the operation of Roman oppressive power, and that's likely what John is getting at here when he says this is Satan's throne. Pergamum is, in this sense, where Satan lives. John's warning includes a reference to Numbers, the book of Numbers in the Old Testament, chapters 22 to 24. And it's a story of a prophet named Balaam. There was not an actual person in Pergamum named Balaam, just as there won't be a person named Jezebel in the next letter. John is referring back to a point in Israel's history when a false prophet led the people astray into idolatry. And John is saying, in effect, that's happening again here. Just as the people back then went after foreign gods because of Balaam, now this prophet in Pergamum is saying that it's okay to go after foreign gods. The specific offense mentioned is eating meat sacrificed to idols. Ben Witherington says that the word here means specifically meat eaten in the presence of an idol to which it had been sacrificed. So as a part of the worship practices themselves. This is in contrast to what Paul is referring to when he says it's okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols in 1 Corinthians. Paul is talking about meat that after the ceremony is left over and sold in the marketplace. John in Revelation is talking about participating in the ceremony itself. That's why Paul says, eh, it's fine, but if it's causing your sibling to stumble, maybe don't do it while John writes an entire bizarre book condemning the practice. But wait, you might say, there's another offense mentioned here, engaging in prostitution and sexual immorality. If you listen to our intro episode, though, 
you know that in Revelation, sex is not about sex. Adultery and prostitution are consistent images the Old Testament prophets use to describe worshiping gods other than Yahweh. And John is surely using that image in the same way here. The people are being unfaithful to Jesus, like someone going to a prostitute is being unfaithful to their spouse. One final note on this letter. John promises to give the one who resists the false prophecies of Balaam a white stone. Some scholars have connected this with the practice in certain parts of the Roman Empire to use white stones as sort of admission tickets to banquets, a way of showing that you had in fact been invited to the party. If that's the case, John would be saying, in effect, the Christians who persevere will have a glorious banquet with Jesus waiting for them. By losing out on these idolatrous banquets now, they will have a heavenly banquet waiting for them later. And that's as good a place as any to pause our walk through the province of Asia. We will have part two up in a couple of days, and I hope you will join me for that as well as we look through the final four letters in these chapters. Until then, bye. Bye.